man, that is, I, I feel like I could just say, hey, let's, let's go back and just sing that song a couple more times couple more times, all of those songs really lifted my heart uh, toward worship. Uh, one, one warning this morning, be careful what you ask for, because, you know, in recent years, it's been so bright that I needed sunglasses to be able to see well, and sweat was dripping off of my forehead, and I thought, man, I hope it's not that hot this year. Well, the Lord has a sense of humor. Sometimes he gives us what we ask for to make sure that uh, we understand that we're truly dependent on him. But we really are so blessed to be able to be here this morning to worship together. Uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, the verses are going to be listed there in your bulletin for you. But I am so thankful that we have this beautiful fall day uh, to worship together. Uh, you know, we're going to be looking at uh, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and Paul had a unique relationship with the church in Corinth. He, he wrote his letter to them in part because they had some problems and issues that he needed to address with them. And Paul repeatedly reminded them of the transformative power of Jesus and the gospel. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he told them, And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. In the old King James, that's one of my favorite passages. It's from glory to glory that we're being transformed. So he, Paul reminded the Corinthian church that the gospel transforms us. The gospel changes us. Knowing Jesus changes us. And so even though they were a church with many problems, some of them very significant problems, Jesus was enough to change them. He believed in the power of the gospel, and he wanted them to believe and to understand the power of the gospel. But in some ways, the Corinthians were like a rebellious teenager, sometimes resisting the changes that God wanted them to make. Sometimes falling back into their patterns of sin from before they knew Christ. And so that's why Paul had to address some of these things with them. But Paul believed in them. And in fact, he, he, was, he did many things and said many things to them to try to encourage them in their walk with Christ so that they would know the power of the gospel and want to be transformed by Jesus. And in chapter 1, verse 7, he told them that our hope in you is firm. Our hope in you is firm. Like, we know that you love Jesus, so our hope is confident that you, in Jesus' strength, can overcome these problems that you're facing. He told them in chapter 1, verse 11, that, that not only are you dealing with problems, but you are important in the ministry. You help us, he says. You help us by your prayers, because they had become faithful in praying for Paul and his ministry. He tells them in verse, or chapter 1, verse 14, that, that we will boast of you in the day of our Lord Jesus. I'm so proud of you, he says. And when, when it comes to Jesus coming back, and when we see Jesus, I will be able to boast of our confidence in you. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, I had confidence in all of you. And in verse 8, he says, reaffirm your love for him. I know you love Jesus, but I want to remind you what you're supposed to be like 
what you're supposed to look like. You're supposed to be and become more and more like Jesus. So the passage that we're going to study together this morning, Paul wanted to remind them of all of these things and remind them that even though they're going through some of these challenges and difficulties, some of their own making, he wanted them to know that through Christ and in his strength, they have hope and they have a future. So let's read together in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with, with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our earthly, our, our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that we'll, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Our first point that we're going to look at this morning is labor and rest. We're out here today having this service in the park in part at least, because of rest. Labor Day became a national holiday in the late 1800s because people were working so hard during the Industrial Revolution trying to make a living and provide for their families. Some families or or, or some uh, people were working uh, 12 hours a day for six or seven days a week. And in 1882, about 10,000 workers took unpaid working man's holiday uh, and held a parade in protest in New York City. That was beginning to take place all around the world, and that kind of laid the foundation for uh, President Grover Cleveland to eventually create this national holiday that we celebrate hardworking Americans and give them a day of rest. And our world desperately needs rest, but not simply the kind that a four-day weekend in September and a cookout can provide. Paul starts out this passage by talking about our, our uh, about eternity. And then in the eternity that we can have in Christ, he says, for now, we know that if this tent that is our earthly home, he's talking about our body, this earthly tent and body that we live in, we know that if this is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made from human hands, eternal in the heavens. Our bodies are like tents, temporary and frail. But ultimately, when we know Christ is our Savior, he will give us a glorified body in eternity that is comparable to a building, permanent, secure, built on the foundation of Christ. And he wants them to know that that is the rest that they're really looking for. It's not just that that we're in this temporary tent and we have this heaven that we're longing for. We, We really need to be living for that. And Paul says that right up front. He wants them to know that. Because you see, in a world that is full of trials, difficulty, and turmoil, 
we must never forget that our ultimate rest can only be found in Christ. Our ultimate rest is only in God. Paul says we know that our bodies are temporary. It's going to break down. But we have this permanent dwelling that God has prepared for us. Humanly speaking, we place our confidence in a lot of, shall we say, less than certain things. I have confidence it's not going to rain today. Earlier in the week, I had confidence that it was going to be a 74-degree sunny day. Sometimes those things change. We trust our retirement savings are safe in the stock market. When Julie and I had young kids and we'd go out for a date night, we trusted that the kids were going to behave themselves while we were gone and not do anything too dangerous. But this isn't like that kind of trust. Paul wanted the Corinthian church to have absolute confidence in their future in Christ. Because when we live our lives with absolute confidence of our future that is in Christ, it affects everything that we're doing today. When we live in light of that truth, it changes the way that you and I live in this fallen and broken world. And while we're here in this life may be difficult, it's not all that there is. There's so much more in store for us. And we need to live like we understand that. Of all people, we who know the truth should be living in light of eternity. Not just the here and now that this world has to offer. You see, Paul, however, doesn't minimize the difficulties that we're facing in this world. He tells them very clearly that sometimes terrible things are going to happen. But even in this tent, even if the tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a forever building prepared for us in eternity by God. But still, in this tent, he says we groan. It's hard. Life is tough. He's not sugarcoating anything. He admits that life in this sinful, broken world is difficult at times. But living for Christ is worth it. He told the church in Rome the exact same principle. When he wrote to them in Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the eternal glory that is revealed to us. The sufferings that we face here in this world don't even compare to what God has in store for us in eternity. Paul knows with absolute confidence that his eternity is secure in Christ, and so that living today is worth it. And he wanted the Corinthian church to know that, he wants us to know that. Present sufferings, although very hard, can't compare to the glory that God has revealed for us. As one writer describes it, he says this, The eternal rewards outvalue the trials, and we can count on them, because they are a fixed reality, a settled fact, based on the promise of God. Our eternity in Christ is secure, and it is secure and promised to us by God himself. So we need to remember that raising your kids to follow Jesus is hard. Taking a stand against a culture that is increasingly hostile toward your faith is hard. Loving your neighbor and sacrificially demonstrating the grace of God to a lost world that doesn't understand or know about Jesus and the gospel is hard. Loving your spouse when you're going through a difficult time of disagreement, it's hard. I don't know what you're facing today, but our Heavenly Father does. 
And he wants you to know that in the end, it's worth it. Because no matter what trials or difficulties you're facing, as you labor for Christ in this world, if you know Jesus, take heart. He has overcome this world. And he has an eternity of blessing in his presence prepared for you and I and all who know him as Savior. That is the promise that we can bank our lives upon and live our lives in light of. No matter what you're facing, even death, we can trust in the promises of God. When Paul speaks of our tent being torn down, he's talking about death, but not in a melancholy way, or he's not using it like a hyperbole. He's confronting one of humankind's greatest fears. Death is perhaps the most terrifying and most confusing aspect of life for most human beings. No matter how much we try to control it, through healthy living, medical advancements, or whatever infomercial remedy that captures our attention today, it's ultimately in the hands of our Creator. And that is scary. But Paul wants us to have confidence, even in the face of death. So as we see in verse 4, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Paul is reminding the Corinthians, and he is reminding us, that when we focus on the trials in life, even the biggest trials that we face day to day, death, we lose sight of the life that Christ has for us. When we're constantly focused on the trials, we lose sight of all the blessings and the life that we have in Christ. And that leads us to our next point this morning. Paul wants us all to have hope for our future. The school year has begun for most of our students in the area. If you're sitting close to one of them, you may have heard a groan. Different from the groan Paul's talking about earlier in our passage, but a groan nonetheless. Sometimes as parents, we might try to encourage our students with a promised reward in the future. If everyone has a good fall semester, maybe we'll go on a small trip over Christmas break or over Thanksgiving break. We often try to bribe our kids with, with promised blessings in the future. But that's not really what Paul is saying here. When Scripture says that God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, it's true. But that doesn't necessarily just mean that eventually there's a good reward at the end. It means that even the everyday struggles and trials that we face are good. That God has a meaning and a purpose for those trials that we're facing today. He, he is going to work those together for my good. So even the trials that I'm going through are, are good. You see, mature believers in Christ must be able to look past our daily struggles and trust that God has a purpose and a plan for our lives. In every aspect of it. If God has a plan for my life, then that means even the trials, the struggles, and the difficulties that I face in my everyday life are part of that plan that he has for me. We're not supposed to be like the little children that groan at the thought of going back to school or groan because the promised trip isn't really worth it. The greatest blessing that we have in Jesus is Jesus. So that when we're facing these trials, that Christ is there with us. He's indwelt us with his Holy Spirit that will never leave us. And he said he'll never leave us and never forsake us. Our groaning then isn't, isn't in complaint. Our groaning is, and our, is a longing to be with Christ. We're not groaning because, because of this body. We're groaning because we long to be with Jesus more than anything else that this world has to offer. He is the treasure that we're supposed to want more than anything that this world can give us. Notice in verse 5, 
that it is God who prepared us for this very thing. And he's given us the Holy Spirit as a, as a, as a guarantee. Our eternal rest, joy, and peace are given to us and guaranteed for us by God himself. It is signed, sealed, delivered. You see, our faith in Christ gives us confidence then to take a stand for him. Because the promise is dependent upon him and not us. Because our relationship with him is guaranteed by him and not us. We can take a stand right now, here and today, for Christ. The, the language Paul uses in this text isn't ambiguous. It's not wishy-washy, man. He is cut and straight to the point. He wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what God has promised, he will do. And if we truly believe that, we will be courageous Christians willing to live for Christ and take a stand in this fallen and broken world. That's what we will do. We will be courageous Christians. Look again at verse 6. It says, so we are always of good courage, courageous Christians. However, all too often, we're timid. We're afraid. We don't want to speak about God in the Bible. We're afraid to, that uh, what we say might offend someone. We're afraid of what they might think about us. We're afraid that, that, that they may disagree with us or ask us a question that we don't know the answer to. But as a child of God, as somebody who knows the truth, we have nothing to be afraid of. Yes, we live in a fallen, broken world, but Jesus promised to build his church, and he said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that is a promise that we can trust. We're supposed to be always of good courage because we know. Paul, said, Paul doesn't just say, we think, we hope. He said, we know these things. This is true. This is truth you can build your life upon. We know who Jesus is. We know what he has done for us. We know all of his promises. We know that his word is true. Every word, every sentence, it can be trusted. It can be obeyed. It can be applied to your life today and mine. No matter what trials and difficulties we're facing. Even when things around us look dim, we that's why in verse 7, Paul reminds us that we walk by faith, not by sight. We see this same concept back again in Romans chapter 8, verses 23, 22 and 25, where Paul says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. The whole creation is groaning with us. It sees this brokenness. Together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. We have confidence, not in the things that we see, but in the God who we can't see, but we know. And we can trust his promises. Look again at verse 8. It says, yes, we are of good courage. Paul says it a second time. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Even though we're longing for Jesus and, and some days it feels like, man, come Lord Jesus, come Maranatha. I can't wait for you to come back, Jesus. But we know and we have confidence. And there's nothing wrong with longing for heaven. That should be our longing, longing for Jesus to return. When we look at all the brokenness in the world around us, it's okay to think, I can't wait to be perfected 
in heaven and to be with Christ for eternity. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. God still has us here for whatever his plan and purpose that he wants to accomplish in and through us. And so we need to be people who understand that. So unless God has made some terrible mistake, we should follow his purpose and plan and trust him. Trust his reason that he has you and your family here. Trust the reason that God has you in the home that you live in. That he has you in the school that you go to school. That he has your friend group be who your friend group is. We need to trust God. So that means that you and I have to make some daily life decisions. A person who knows that their eternal rest in Christ is guaranteed must live this life in light of that truth. If you know that your eternal rest in Christ is guaranteed, signed, sealed, delivered, trusted in God, he's the one who provides it, not dependent upon you, all dependent upon him. When you know that, that means this life must be lived in light of that truth. That means we must be different. Let me say that one more time. A person who knows that their eternal rest in Christ is guaranteed must live this life in light of that truth. Look at verse 9. We make it our aim to please him. Because of all these things that are true, we make it our aim to please God. Because there's an eternal house in heaven that will replace this mortal body, aware of that reality, aware of those promises, we look beyond this earthly life, and we yearn to be with the Lord. But because we're not there yet, and though we believe completely in that reality, we make it our goal and aim to please Him. Every day of our lives, we should be saying, because of all that Christ has done for me, I long to be with him forever. But while he still has me here, my goal and my aim should be to please him, to live for him every moment of every day. If you're here this morning and you claim to know that Jesus is your Savior, and yet you're living your life only for you, for your family, for your benefit, that means you are living a life of sin against the one who loved you enough to die on the cross for your sins. If, if you claim to be a Christian and you are living solely for yourself, you are doing it wrong. Because this passage of Scripture tells us when we know that, our aim and our goal must be to live for Him. Or maybe you're here this morning and you don't really understand any of this. This living for Jesus and what He's done for me. Let me quickly explain Jesus' message for you and for all of us. It's quite simple. The gospel is this, that all have sinned. We've all sinned against a holy, righteous, perfect God. And the penalty for that sin is that we should be eternally separated from him. But God wants us to have that eternal hope of being with him forever. And so he demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin and for yours so that we could have eternity with him forever. So while we are here in this temporary tent, we will spend eternity somewhere, either with Christ or separated from him. And the only way that we can have eternity with Christ is not through good works. We can never do enough good things to make up for our sin. 
but Christ died to pay my penalty and yours so that we could have eternal life through faith in Christ. It is God's gift of grace to us. He has done everything necessary to accomplish our salvation. If that's something you'd like to know more about, I'd encourage you to talk to myself at the fellowship, talk to somebody else, ask some questions. There's nothing more important than understanding and knowing what the gospel message is and what the grace of God can mean for you in your life. But now I want us to turn our attention to verse 10. Verse 10 is, is a very difficult passage for most Christians to hear. It tells us we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's important to note here that this judgment seat of Christ that is being talked about here it isn't talking about our salvation. This is called the Bema Seed. It has nothing to do with our salvation. Our salvation is signed, sealed, and delivered. Once we are in Christ, we are in Christ forever. We may be a disobedient Christian. We may not be uh, walking with Jesus daily the way we should. But if you are truly in Christ, you are saved. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. But this is talking about the fact that believers the acts of believers' lives will be judged. God will call into account and bring rewards and blessings based on how we have lived in light of this truth of the gospel that we know. There's so much more we could go into with that. We could look at 1 Corinthians 3.15 or 1 Corinthians 4.5. But I want to take us back a little farther to Ecclesiastes 12.14. That says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every, secret, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The God who knows my heart, the God who sees everything, he will call into account those things. And there will be rewards and blessings for serving him. It, but that is, has nothing to do with my eternal salvation. That is secure in Christ. So, so if you have questions about what that means, it's quite frankly that once you are in Jesus, your eternal hope is forever secured, and yet you are called to live for Christ every day. You're called, as this passage tells us, to, to live with courage and confidence in the truth that we know. And God wants us to live that way, and we will give an account for how we live. The last point I want us to think about is this. Life is short. Invest your life now in opportunities that will last forever. I believe that is the heart of this passage. Life is short. This tent will not last forever, but that eternal building will. So live today in light of that truth. Invest your life now in opportunities that will last forever. The word that's translated evil there in verse 10 oftentimes is actually just translated as worthless, right? Don't get caught up in worthless things in your life. Don't get caught up investing in things that have no real eternal value. This passage of scripture is challenging us with. This is a simple reminder to all of us that we should invest in things that have eternal value, that have eternal worth. Invest in people and ministry that will last forever. The book of Ecclesiastes in that passage 
that verse that I read earlier, has such great wisdom for us and regarding thinking about eternal things and, and, and how the things of this world really aren't going to last forever and, and how, many, how so many things that we pursue are meaningless. But it's always fascinating to me that Ecclesiastes 12.14 is the last verse in Ecclesiastes. And King Solomon comes back to this final reminder that God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We're going to give an account. We want that accounting to be well done, thou good and faithful servant. We want that accounting to be these are the blessings that you will receive. These are the lives that were changed because of your investment in proclaiming my name to the ends of the earth. We need to understand that as Solomon understood, ultimately God will judge everything and bring it to account. So we need to ask ourselves that question each and every day. What am I doing today to live in light of the truth that I know of Christ? I don't say that to scare us. Paul didn't say that to scare us. I don't believe Solomon said what he said to scare us. As a believer in Jesus, we know this truth. And we shouldn't be afraid. We don't need to be scared. But what it should do is motivate us. Motivate us to live each and every day for Christ and for eternity. I believe that this truth that Paul shared with the church in Corinth is the reason he wrote in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because even if this earthly tent goes away, it bro is broken down, it is destroyed. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I have the eternal hope that is secure for me because of the promises of God. I believe that's the truth that Paul wanted the Corinthian church to know, he wanted the Philippian church to know, he wanted the Roman church to know, and he wants our church to know. That is what God wants for us, to live each day in light of the gospel. Just a few moments, we're going to close with uh, a song. I, I really debated back and forth. There's really two songs that I wanted to close with. One was the uh, classic hymn, Only One Life, that says this, Only one life to offer, take it, dear Lord, I pray, nothing from thee withholding, thy will I now obey. My Jesus, got to put the echo in there. Thou hast to thou who has freely given thine all in all for me. Claim this life for your own to be used, my Savior, every moment for thee. It would have been a completely appropriate song to close with. But instead, I I chose to end with the the, the new contemporary hymn, Almost Home, because it, what I see in this passage of scripture. Not that I think that the other hymns, Only One Life, tries to guilt you or beat us down. But what I want us to see in this passage of Scripture is the hope that is in there. All throughout this passage of Scripture, it is because of our hope in Jesus in eternity that we can live today boldly for Christ. It is because of our promise of heaven in Christ that we can live courageously in this world. In the song that we're going to be singing, Almost Home, says this, This journey ours together, we're almost home. Unto that great forever, we're almost home. 
What song anew will sing around that happy throne? Come faint of heart, we're almost home. You may be here this morning and you are faint of heart because this world has beaten you down. We're almost home. Live in light of that truth. The closing verse says, this, this life is just a vapor. The tent won't be here forever, but we're almost home. The sun is setting yonder, we're almost home. Take courage, for this darkness shall break to dawn. Lift your eyes, we're almost home. Whatever you are facing, whatever you are going through, realize we are almost home. But until we're home, Jesus, who has given us life eternal, wants us to boldly and courageously live for him. My hope is that is your desire this morning. But maybe you're like me and you needed this reminder from Paul to remind us of all that Christ has done for us and why we should live for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that every word in your scriptures are true and can be trusted. Thank you that we have eternity in heaven promised to us, a building secured not by our own works. There's nothing that we can do to earn it, but secured for us because of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross of Calvary. Oh Lord, I pray that we who know that truth would live boldly and courageously. I pray that those who don't know and understand that truth would come to know Christ, would seek the answers that they need, and that your Holy Spirit would work in them and bring new life into them. And Father, for those who are here this morning and are hurting, I pray that they would be encouraged and reminded that you have a purpose and a plan for them. And that we are almost home. And we must live in light of that truth. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.